I'm Nathan Bashez. I'm one of the co-founders of the Everything Bundle. We're here with uh, Lee Jin and Adam Davidson. This is part two. If you missed part one, that's okay. This will still be a lot of fun. But just for some context, we had a conversation two weeks ago where it was just a really wide-ranging, really fascinating discussion about everything going on in the passion economy. Adam and Lee are basically like the Leibniz and Newton of the passion economy. They both independently developed the thesis around the same time. And, and got to know each other and got to work together. And it's the makings of a great buddy comedy, I think. Um, <laughs> so so it's, really, it's really great to, to be here with them and to chat. And last time we went, we meant to do more audience Q&A, but that we just kind of got carried away in conversation. And at the end, everyone in the chat was like, let's do a part two. So here we are. So yeah. I just want to set up a little more and kind of like re-intro for anyone who maybe wasn't here in part one. So I'll, I'll start with Lee. Lee was recently a partner on the investing team at Andreessen Horowitz for four years, where she covered marketplaces and other consumer platforms. And she was the first VC investor to introduce the term passion economy into the tech world through her blog post, The Passion Economy and the Future of Work. And then earlier this year, she left Andreessen Horowitz and launched her own firm, Atelier, to invest in early stage startups in the passion economy, most notably like platforms that make it easier for people to pursue and monetize their passions. So welcome, Lee. And Lee is also the co-host with me on this show often, but we're, we're putting her in the guest chair with Adam for these, this special series. And then Adam Davidson is the creator of NPR's Planet Money podcast, New Yorker staff writer, written for uh, New York Times Magazine, just amazing writer, and also most recently writer of the book, The Passion Economy, uh, which explores stories of people who follow their dreams to craft a livelihood. And he also writes about the same topics at passion.substack.com for Substack newsletter. And he's the co-founder of 3Uncanny4, an amazing new podcasting company. So lots of, lots of great stuff from both Lee and Adam. And I'm also... Oh, the yeah. world's preeminent Lee Jin hype man. So, yeah. all, I, Aww, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I think we like to hype each other up. So, this yeah, is like true. a hype circle. Yeah. It's a exactly. hype circle. It's not a hype cycle, it's a hype circle. Yeah. <laughs> it just keeps going. Um, so, one thing, this is actually related to something we were talking about in the intro that kind of stuck out to me from the questions from last time. Also, the way, the way I'll kind of cover this is there's a bunch of questions that got asked last time. I, I'll probably jump into some of those, but ask new questions. There's this Q&A functionality, which is really good. So anyone, anyone can type in their questions there and see other people's questions. So I'll mostly go by that because I want this mostly to be a sort of like interactive hour, but just to start and to get everybody's juices flowing. You know, in the intro, Adam, you were talking about this, this family member of yours who, or a friend of yours, I sorry, I can't remember the relation, but who, who wants to leave his job to, to do sort of his, pursue his passion, but then was affected by COVID. And that became a lot harder. And one of the questions from last time was, what is the impact on COVID? Um, it's such a broad question, but there's like shift towards remote work. There's a lot of people with more time on their hands to consume digital stuff. There's people who have less ability to pursue physical stuff. I'm just curious to hear broadly from, from both Adam and Lee, kind of like what you've seen because of COVID and especially anything that you suspect may linger for a really long time after COVID. Yeah, I'm happy to just give a few quick thoughts, but I'm actually very eager to hear Lee's thoughts. I mean, I, I would guess that for a lot of people, it's short-term bad news for a transition to a life where they're living their a better life, where they're a decommoditized worker. They're actually able to make money either in a job or through entrepreneurial ways that embodies who they are, their unique value, et cetera. I mean, there's there's less money available. There's, there's a lot of, you know, it'd be hard, harder, I would guess, for a lot of types of business to find customers. That being said, my instinct is this is long-term actually very 
good news for the overall transition to a passion economy. Part of that is just, we're clearly gonna move much more quickly towards better technology for remote interaction. And, and our, we're, we're just, you know, I've been hearing, I feel like since I graduated college in the early nineties, like, oh, we're all gonna work remotely and we never did. And now we were all forced to, and we're learning, okay, there are ways in which we don't wanna always do this, but there are ways in which this works. And, you know, my, part of my core thesis and very much aligns with Lee's, I think, is that the opportunity of this digital age is that I can provide a unique kind of value and I can provide it to people all over the world. So I'm able to find my unique customers in a way that I would have, you know, they'd have to like live near me. So just as a quick example, I met a woman who's a art designer for food related photography. So you want to shoot that bowl of cereal or that eggplant beautifully. And that was always an in-person job. She would go to shoots and guide people. And for desperation reasons, she's now doing it remotely where she's guiding someone in another city, often another country and giving them guidance. And she's like, I'm realizing I can now, I'm not just limited to people who are doing this near me. I can reach everyone everywhere, which means she can find the people who most value her and she can charge a higher price. She can, you know, presumably be happier, et cetera. So I see that as really good. And I do hope that at least some people are using this forced isolation to spend at least, it's hard, it's a hard time, but to spend at least part of it really thinking about themselves and thinking about what satisfaction looks like. You know, we don't often in life get a forced chance or a non-forced chance to just step away from the day-to-day. I hope that at least for some, that that's a positive step. Yeah, I, I agree with both of those thoughts. I think the first point about delocalization and how that enables people to really find their tribe and to find a base of customers worldwide, I think that's really powerful. I think in, a, in an interview a couple of years ago with Ben Thompson, he mentioned, I think this was on Recode, he mentioned the internet enables niche in a really powerful way. Like Stratechery could have only existed in an internet world because, you know, if he had published it as a print magazine for his local audience, it would have been really difficult to find enough people to sustain that business. And I think what underpins the passion economy is the fact that people in the long tail who have a special talent or knowledge are able to amass a base of customers that doesn't need to be huge in order for them to be able to make a living. And I think that delocalization that is empowered by the, the internet is, is really critical to that, is critical to enabling people to make an income this way. Totally. I think I'm the loving second... the idea of Stratechery as like a print zine. I just have to like just have to imagine <laughs> that for a second. Like the photocopier thing that I used to get yeah. in middle school from the cool yeah, kids. Yeah, I mean, I would actually kind of love a print version of yeah. a lot of my favorite newsletters, but that's another tangent. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think the other impact that COVID has had is that it's shown many people that they can't actually rely on a single employer necessarily for their entire income. Like I think the old social contract in America was exchange your loyalty and your time to a single employer and you'll be taken care of for your entire life. And that social contract has been broken. And now I think people have realized, especially with COVID, that 
even though you might be a great worker, a great employee and be very loyal to your employer, anything might change in the world in an instant and you might lose that job and you might lose 100% of your income. And so I think people have really shifted in their mindset to realize that perhaps side hustles aren't just you know, this last ditch resort to be able to make money and cobble together an income if you can't find a full-time job. It's actually perhaps more preferable to have side hustles and to diversify your income rather than to have it all come from a single employer. Like I, I wrote that piece earlier this year called 100 True Fans, which was a spin on Kevin Kelly's piece, 1000 True Fans. And I think it was basically about how people in the passion economy can make a living off of just a hundred customers. If those a hundred customers are paying them a relatively high amount. And the, the pushback that I got often from that piece was, well, isn't this super risky? If you lose one customer, you're losing 1% of your total income. That's true, but people don't realize that having a single employer and a full-time job is like having one true fan. And you could lose that true fan at any moment and have none of your income left. So I think COVID is now shifting like the psychology of American workers to a state where they would actually prefer to have a diversified range of different income streams, perhaps mediated by digital platforms. Yeah. And if I could just quickly, I mean, I completely agree with that. I think one of the thoughts I often have is people look at the 21st century through 20th century eyes and that. And it's the, the things that were good choices in the 20th century are, you know, get in a career, keep your head down, do the job, mold yourself to the job are, are that's a really bad advice. I mean, not, maybe there's some industries where that still makes sense, but overall, and that's something I keep coming against with friends, with people I meet that in a weird way, the riskiest thing is to do the safe thing of like, hey, I got a good job. I'm not going to rock the boat. That might be kind of the inverse of COVID-19, short-term safe, but long-term disastrous. And I'm older than you guys. Once you get to 50, as I am, you just don't have as many moves. You don't have the energy to reinvent yourself. I mean, I did just start a company, but I started the company sort of knowing, like, this is probably my last big thing. And I can remember being in my 20s and 30s and feeling like, I'm able to pivot. I'm able to to just jump in. But I just don't have the energy. I have a family. Like it's mm-hmm. it so especially for younger people, I think do not lock yourself into a career and then find out at 50, oh boy, I have to figure this new thing out. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I I I love that point. I think that one of the things that is this this wasn't an audience question, but I, I think I remember it from from last time. Like, there's almost like an interesting problem with, with the way that ac- the access, sort of access to the passion economy ca- is distributed. Like, if you have kids to take care of, or, you know, if you're older, potentially, or if you're like, you know, in whatever, like, there's different, like, financial situations people can be in where it's, like, harder or easier, obviously. And, like, platforms that make it easier for a broader range of people to, to do it are, I think, a very interesting direction and there's so many different angles of like blockers essentially that could stop someone from, from sort of like taking a risk or trying something new. I'm curious if y'all have seen any unique ways that, you know, platforms or businesses have made it easier for a wider variety of people to do stuff. And then maybe that's not just like this social good, but also it's like unlocking a unique kind of supply that like 
couldn't be found currently because these people, you know, for whatever reason, it's, it's, there's a barrier to, for, their, for entry for them. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the opportunity for founders in the passion economy is to identify, like, what are the pockets of human capital that exist in the population at a large scale that currently aren't being tapped into, that can be productized and offered to customers in a novel way. And I think a lot of the big platforms and companies in the passion economy thus far have really honed in on a new way to capture, productize, and make available different aspects of human capital. Like I think Substack did that in terms of translating knowledge into a written newsletter. Anchor did that with knowledge into a podcast and how to make it easier for people to share their knowledge through the format of a podcast. I'm really interested in like, what are all of the new formats of like, what are the new products that could be created in the future that we might not even be aware of today that let people showcase various skills or expertise that they have and to capture economic value from it? Like, I think there's new formats remaining out there that are still undiscovered that would let people sort of unlock some passion or skill or talent or knowledge um, that just is sort of locked in their brains today and that a customer somewhere in the world would really benefit from and be willing to pay for. Yeah, that the, I, I believe, I, Lee, I think you would definitely agree that we're at the really early stages. I mean, the, the, there's many multi-billion dollar companies that'll come that will support this and lots and lots of other smaller companies that will support this shift. And, you know, if you sort of have a cloud computing metaphor or, you know, that we still are, you know, all these people who have all these capabilities and, and, and the, the matching process, which is what marketplaces at their best can do well of sort of spare capacity in a person and a spare need in a person somewhere else, finding ways to match that efficiently. Like we're, in my view, we're barely at the early stages of that. But I think of, you know, if you think of like SETI computers or something where, you know, I'm able to communicate in some way and there are already tools that allow me to do this, but you know, here's what I'm able to do here, you know, have some thought about pricing, et cetera. I think there's huge capacity there and as, as Lee has written about so well, the marketplace design could make us all commodities. Like, you know, if, if I'm, you know, writer number 3784 on some wet writer website, then I'm going to make whatever the least amount is for writers. But if I'm saying I am a writer who's uniquely good at these things and terrible at these things, and someone needs the things I'm good at, then I'm able to, to charge a premium and, and, you know, and, 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 and do that. So I don't want to sound totally Pollyanna. There will be battles between labor and capital and, and distributed workers and, and the owners of platforms. But, but I do think there's a lot of good news coming. Totally. I love this question from Zach Khan, which is uh, the creator economy today is primarily one to many with the creator making content for a large audience. Do you see a shift to a more bi-directional model where the line between creator and consumer is more blurred? like perhaps a live Zoom call where people can ask questions and uh, fans play a more active role in the creation of content. I mean, I would say absolutely. I mean, I think that there are, this already exists. It, it, it 
could exist more, but I love like Hackaday's is Tindy.com where, I mean, these are like unbelievably geeky products that are created in, in a group setting where like you almost can't buy them without being part of the creation of them because they're so technical and specific. I have no idea if they're making any money at it, but I love that. I used to love drop.com, massdrop.com. They stopped selling and making the things I love the most. So like fountain pens, but, right. but it was a really cool way when I was involved in it of discovering as a community, like, what do we want? Who in the world has it? How can we get it? So yeah, that feels like a, a major growth area, I would think. Lee, are, are there, I'm sure you know of other folks. Yeah, I think this is also one of the reasons why I don't love the term creator. I, I think like no one has really figured out what term to use instead of creator. I oftentimes say like micro entrepreneur, freelancer, independent worker, self-employed worker, solopreneur. But the, the term creator sort of connotes a single individual creating content for an audience. And the direction that the information flows is often one directional. And it's like, you know, one single person speaking to a lot of other people and giving information to them. And I think that is just sort of the wrong connotation. And I think that people who are making a living off of their passions in the passion economy encompass a whole wide variety of different business models and different product types, some of which are more bi-directional to this person's question, to Zach's question. Like, I think that the passion economy doesn't just include influencers and content creators on Instagram who are distributing information to their audience. I think it also includes community leaders who are bringing together people to engage with each other and to interact and learn from each other. It also includes like curators of content who may not be creating something original on their own, but just assembling together high quality resources from across the internet. Like there's there's a number of newsletter writers on Substack that have gained a tremendous amount of traction, not by actually creating their own content, but just by curating resources and different links around the internet. And I think in this age of like a tremendous amount of information available on the internet, the role of a curator is actually really, really important. And the role of community as a way to filter information is really important too. So I, I, I totally see that we're going to shift more towards not just bi-directional, but more of a network-driven model where there's really blurred lines between who is the creator versus who is the audience. I think newer models sort of elevate everyone to the level of a creator and empower everyone to create content and to share it with each other. We're in this Slack group called Passion Economy Pals, a bunch of founders and Adam and Nathan and myself, where we're sharing news all day, exchanging resources, talking about hiring, requests for the community, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's an example of not just like one directional content distribution, but really a community coming together and helping each other. Totally. Also, in my own experience, I find that the line is already blurry, even when it doesn't seem blurry from far away. Like, I don't know what percent of my recent really good posts on divinations have been collaborations, but it's like a high percent. 
And those collaborations came from people who are readers who are like, hey, like you should write about this. Or I would reach out to someone and be like, hey, you wrote about this. Like, I think that's cool. Do you want to do a collaboration on like an, an adjacent sort of like idea? And I get a lot of energy up out of it because it brings like fresh thinking and like new perspectives. And it's good for the people I'm collaborating with because they get exposed to a larger audience. And I'm doing a lot of work to like edit the thing and kind of rewrite sections or whatever to like make it feel divination-y. And so even though it's like in Substack, you'd look at it and be like, oh, well, it's just like a writer who has like a newsletter. It's kind of like, well, but like there's channels, <laughs> you know, whether it's a Twitter DM or apply to an email or whatever, like it's already very bi-directional. And I think that it'll be very interesting to see new, new sort of like platforms or structures maybe that could emerge that could make it more like inherently bi-directional, I guess. But even the ones that don't seem bi-directional, like it already is, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I have a question for Adam, actually, um, based on something that he published recently in his newsletter. It is titled The Passion Economy and COVID-19. And in it, you mentioned that we're sort of in this era of the death of the middle. And you say that the 20th century was a great time for the middle. It was great to be middle class. It was great to have a mid-quality company serving a mid-sized audience. You could be perfectly adequate, but unexceptional in terms of being an accountant, winemaker, chocolatier, banker, whatever. And people went for the perfectly fine service provider nearby. Today, we're seeing the death of the middle, the death of the adequate, but unspectacular. It's so interesting. I really agree with a lot of this. And I am curious on your thoughts of the implications of this idea and like it, it relates to the delocalization thing that we were talking about before where people aren't just restricted to what they have nearby but can choose the best out of what's available around the world. But what does that mean for people who are just adequate? <laughs> what does it mean for the economy and those workers who maybe feel like they're not exceptional at anything? Yeah, I think there, there's happy news and bad news in, in that idea. You know, some economists call it the barbellification of the economy. You know, I think of it as like there's an intimacy and scale kind of where the middle part is is disappearing. Part of it, I think, is we don't know yet because we've never been here as a species. Like nobody, like, you know, it used to be there was no middle. There was farmers, which was 90 something percent. And then there was a tiny elite that wasn't really adding value in any way that we understand that today. And the people who seemed like they were middle class, I mean, like traders and the equivalent of entrepreneurs would have been, you know, throughout the Middle Ages and ancient Mesopotamia, to the extent we can figure it out, that would have been a tiny percent, you know, 1%, 2% of, of people. So we've never been in a place where as many people, as huge a percentage of the population is really essentially exposed to the market and, and, and in a sense, that's what I'm arguing, that if you were that mid-size whatever, the accountant who served, you know, mid-size businesses in Joplin, Missouri or whatever, you were not exposed to a big market. You just, you kind of had that business, you know, I'm sure Joplin, Missouri had the same accountant firm. I'm, I don't know anything about Joplin, Missouri, just for some reason <laughs> that name popped into my head, but you know, probably in 1990, it was the son of the guy who was the big accountant in 1950. And there's probably a dentist there and a pharmacy. And, and now lots of people in Joplin, Missouri are using automated tax, they're reaching or, or tax people in other cities and other countries. So yes, what do you do if you're mediocre? 
I think your life is permanently worse unless you can figure out a way not to be mediocre. Now, the good news I would say is when we lived in a kind of standardization scale economy, there was often one dimension. So you you really could almost rank accountants and this one's better than this one. Now it's very multidimensional. I might want an accountant, you know, all accountants have access to automated software now. So they're not going to compete on I add up better or I, you know, I'm better at getting your 1040 done quickly because that's essentially free. They're going to compete on how do they interact with you. And maybe I want one who kind of yells at me and pushes me to get my receipts in on time. And you (laughs) want one who holds your hand. And so you can be exceptional to a small group of people without being objectively like you went to Harvard Business School and you're the best accountant in the world. And that's the really good news. So in my book, I tell the story of Jason Blummer, who is a great accountant. He used to have three or 400 clients in the Greenville, South Carolina area. And he was one of a lot of accountants. He made an okay living, but not a great living. He now has 40 clients. I don't think any of them are in Greenville. And he makes way more money because he's found his group. And you might hate Jason Blummer or just find him not good for you. But for the people he clicks with, he's adding so much value that they're willing to pay him a high premium. So, but yes, the, I do feel like I know people and I've worked with people who really want the old system. For yeah. some, I, I think of, I was a reporter in Baghdad. I got to Baghdad like right as the city fell to the American troops. And something that was a surprise to me is how many Iraqis hated Saddam, knew that they were very poor under Saddam, but they liked the certainty. It was a mm. total controlled economy. And you basically were guaranteed a pretty cat crap government job and a pretty crappy bundle of food and there were a lot of people who they were trained to want that and they did not like the new opportunity or the new you could do whatever you could do a lot there's a big range of things to do so yeah there are going to be people whose life is permanently worse because of this trend i would say those are probably not people who are going to zoom webinars about the future of the economy. We used to joke at Planet Money, if you're worried about your place in the global economy, you're fine because you know enough to be worried. It's the people who are not worried, who don't think anything changed that are really screwed. Right, right, totally. Yeah, I I think that's super interesting. I agree with you that I think on an industry by industry basis, there are different consumer preference functions that determine whether there's going to be a small number of winners and a small number of people that can be successful or whether it's a really large number of people that can be successful because everyone wants something quite different. But I think also with this barbellification of the economy, it also raises this thought for me that I think in some, in some industries, there's actually like more accessibility to become a worker in that industry than there was before now that the internet exists and now that the internet has removed gatekeepers like i think in some industries the delocalization aspect has made it a lot more difficult to thrive in the middle but i think for other industries like media journalism and writing perhaps being a video content creator there's now so many more people who are able to make a living doing that than there were before under the old hollywood system 
And that's because social networks now exist and you can find a small loyal audience that supports you on Patreon or supports you on Substack. So I think even though there's some industries where there's this hollowing out of the middle, I think in other industries, there's now a flourishing of new creators who, who wouldn't have been able to exist before. Totally. No, I agree with that. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the interesting you know things. I'm going to put in oh, the comments. I wrote an article about that I really liked. Pers- I mean, that's obnoxious to say about my own. Um, <laughs> I completely work, know but, the feeling. <laughs> uh, but it's, a, it's about my family in Worcester, Massachusetts. And it's sort of a love letter to the middle of the 20th century. Like, yeah. And, and what a force that was. Like how gleeful it was to become the mediocre middle in you know 1930 yeah but you don't want to be there today yeah yeah there there was something lee in what you said that i think is a great transition to the the next question that i i I am personally very fascinated by which is in some markets there's a consumer preference function that means that there's a small amount of big winners and in other markets the preference function dictates that people have a wide variety of different preferences and so there's a lot of different types of winners there's not like one canonical best and uh, someone asked anonymous attendee, I'm going to pretend that it's the CEO of Uber. How can legacy gig companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash evolve to a passion economy model? Is that even possible? Like, is it possible to sort of create differentiated ride sharing where it's non-commodity labor? You know, and then related to this is Krishna asks, how do you think bill AB 3262 will change the passion economy? Which is that the one that has where you have to be a full-time employee that Uber and Lyft are sort of like fighting against? I, I would guess that that's what yeah, that I believe was. that's the one that, if I'm not mistaken, that like eBay and Etsy and stuff have to, they can be liable if you buy something crappy. Oh, right. Okay. Different yeah. one. Let's not lump it in then. I was thinking of, I think it's called 35 or something. Anyway, let's just do the, the can Uber and Lyft and DoorDash be passionate? Could they evolve to a passion economy model? I think that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure, to be honest. I I think there are some gig economy companies that could also coexist with a passion economy alternative. I often bring up the example of Dumpling, which I'm an investor in, which is this business in a box platform that enables individuals to set up, manage, and run their own grocery delivery business, sort of as a competitor to Instacart. So rather than having to sign up for Instacart and being a grocery delivery person on their platform, you can build your own book of business that is loyal to you, maintain and keep more of the earnings, really understand the preferences of the customers that you're serving, set up a separate website that advertises your own grocery delivery business locally and operate that way with more ownership and autonomy and control. So I think that is an example of a company that has taken what has traditionally been thought of as typical gig work and transformed it into a passion economy model where the workers are really passionate about what they're doing and they're um, establishing loyalty with their book of business. When it comes to rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft, I'm not entirely sure if that type of service is conducive to a passion economy model because I'm not sure if there's enough customers out there that really value having the same driver over and over again and feel like special loyalty to a particular driver than they do to other drivers. I think grocery is kind of distinct because 
you know, it's Dumpling's thesis, and this has been borne out in the data, that there are actually customers and families who would prefer to work with the same trusted shopper over and over again. They feel like they really get to know the family's preferences with food, their dietary restrictions. They know how to do substitutions in the right way. They know how to pick the best apples that they want to eat. But for rideshare, I think my impression is that the majority of Americans actually do view that as a commodity service and don't really care who's providing the rides. Maybe there's different pockets of customers like parents who need rides for their children or elderly caregivers who who would prefer to work with, with the same driver and really care about who that driver is. And so maybe it's it's more of a niche business for certain sub-segments of the population, but I'm not sure if those models can really get to scale. And I would just add, I, I totally agree that I don't think they would want, why would they want to? Like they, you know, I see it as a, maybe being a war is a little too dramatic, but it is in their interest to have the opposite of what we're talking about, to have commoditized price taking units of work where they're able to capture more value. You know, if, if you think in the inter- entertainment industry, there's always like, do you, you know, you want to control the IP, you don't want to have the talent be able to take all the value themselves. And, and so, so yeah, I just don't think they would, they would want to, which is, you know, if someone wants to have a passion economy fueled life, I don't know that driving is going to be a good, a good place to do that probably. Um, unless as, as Lee said, there are some very special niche applications. Yeah, and I like what Patrick just added to the chat as well, which is the point that if there is demand for repeat drivers, if people really do think of the drivers as a non-commoditized entity, then they don't even really need that much infrastructure to continue working with that same driver. They just need to text them and Venmo them. Whereas in the grocery delivery world, they need the ordering infrastructure, they need to have the inventory selection from all of the stores. And so... The, the passion economy model in the driving world, perhaps it's it's just really difficult to even establish a company that intermediates that transaction because you can go direct to the provider. And if I can just address AB 3262, because it, it's something yeah. I got like slightly obsessed with earlier this week. So I think something you always see in any industry where new entrants are coming in is old, older companies create complex regulation. And, you know, I think there's a misnomer that big companies hate regulation. They love regulation. You know, if you're, <laughs> an, if you're a banker or a pharmaceutical company, the more complex and absurd the regulation is, the more you're able to have a team of lawyers and accountants and, you know, and lobbyists to make it work for you and the bigger a hurdle there is. So that's my understanding of AB 3262, that it seemed, you know, like most efforts to crush upstarts, it seems like a reasonable thing. You want to buy safe products. Why should, if you buy it online, shouldn't you be protected? But it, as I understand it, it really is an effort by Amazon and others to raise the cost of any individual transaction. So if you're going to sell, you know, the Bachez custom t-shirt, you have to like suddenly pay a lot more in insurance. You have to have a legal thing. Amazon does too, but 
it's much cheaper for them because they can amortize that cost against billions of dollars of business. Totally. So, I cannot guarantee that you won't be attacked by, you know, raving fans who are just so think your t-shirt is amazing when you wear exactly. my shirt. You exactly. Do. You have yeah. to ensure that. Yeah. yeah. And it's just a reminder. Like, I, I think Lee and I both agree, like, it's not the passion economy is coming. It's here and it's going to grow. But there are really powerful forces who don't want it. Like, they want a different they want a scale economy, a commoditized economy. It's in their interest to have that. And, and you know, it's not even bad. For, like they're doing what they want to do and serving a customer need, et cetera. I'm not saying it's evil. It's just worth noting. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I, I think a related, a related concept is like states regulating certifications and licenses for who can actually even operate a business or perform a type of service. And, and this affects so many different types of professions, like cosmetologists, physical therapists, who can operate a restaurant, etc. And recently, I've seen a lot of new passion economy businesses in the food space that are trying to match home chefs with customers who would like home prepared food as an alternative to restaurant food, especially since no one can go to restaurants now and, and the only food that you can get is either pickup or delivery. It would make perfect sense that, you know, people have excess capacity to cook in their kitchens and can probably make things that are quite healthy and suited to lots of diverse tastes and could make extra income that way. Well, there's actually lots of regulations against this, against people being able to sell home cooked food and to offer it for customers, even though it's perfectly legal for us to go to anyone's home and consume it there as a guest, uh, what is illegal is having to pay for it and, and making a living off of it. So I think that's uh, like, there's, there's lots of different types of passion economy, business opportunities that there are regulatory impediments to actually getting off the ground. Yeah. I'm very interested in this question from Alan, which is about discovery. He says, when the entire world is your potential audience, what have you found to be the most effective way for creators to find theirs, especially when you don't have an existing audience? Yeah, I often think about the passion economy entrepreneurship stack as being basically a funnel. And there's three levels to the funnel. There's like the audience discovery and, and growth piece. And then there's like audience engagement and then how do you monetize them at the very bottom of the funnel? And so, you know, there's new companies emerging at the bottom of the funnel now that help people to monetize their audience and to create something that they can charge for, like Substack or Run the World. But at the top of the funnel, that audience discovery piece, I think that is really captured today by a lot of the large social networks like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. That's typically where I see creators going to find and amass an audience and they do that by sharing content and information for free. People often talk about how Twitter and Substack have this very symbiotic relationship and perhaps Substack could really only have gotten to their current level of traction in a world in which Twitter exists and has reached critical mass and people have found people that whose thoughts they really resonate with and would love to consume more of it. So I think there is that really symbiotic relationship between social networks functioning as discovery and then other platforms providing the infrastructure to help productize additional content that can then be sold and monetized. I also think like 
being okay starting small, you know, like we're now talking to 30 something people. I'm thrilled by that. I mean, I feel like we're, you know, I feel like I starting with a group of people who really get what you're talking about, who challenge and question you, who help you refine your thinking. I mean, that's what the two of you are to me. I mean, I, and it, it being okay, starting small, I come from mass communication. You know, I worked at NPR, I worked at the New York times. Like I come from a world where just you want millions of people and I'm learning the value and happily learning the value of starting small. I'd love eventually to have, well, sometimes I do, but I'd love, you know, eventually you want it big, but it's that Y Combinator thing, you know, start with things that don't scale. The other big thing is just like finding the people who are like you and reaching out, which is what the three of us did, you know, and, and, and realizing that we complement each other in different ways. We uh, approach we have similar values, but approach it in different ways. Like that, that feels so exciting to me. You know, I, I started in old media. I started when I, if you wrote for a newspaper, like you just had to get a job and you, like you had to convince someone with a printing press to let you print words. And then there really was no back and forth. There was no communication. So I think, how do you find your audience? Start with one person, three people, 30 people, Totally. I, I, I tweeted this thing that I think helped some people. I got good feedback on it, which was like, no one remembers the first thing you do. You like gradually become known as you get better over time and you keep shipping. So like, I think the only way is to, to, just, to just start and to just keep shipping things on a regular basis, whatever it is that you're sort of shipping. And, and I think that it's really tough if you kind of overthink it and you're like, oh, I have to like, it has to be a massive hit from day one. Otherwise, no one will like it. You know, it's like, it's very easy to sort of accidentally, because there's like an element of it that's like, yeah, when someone does consume a thing and it's like, doesn't meet their expectations, they probably won't again. So you might like, as you're getting started, burn through some initial customers or whatever. But also those people are probably your friends. They're probably, they've got more tolerance for that you're new and that, you know, you'll find kind of an engaging, supportive, early, early community on that. So yeah, I think just- But it also could go the other way that if you are offering something really unique that is really wrong for 99% of people and really right for 1%. You, you, when you're first starting out, you might find that, you know, the first 80 people you reach are like, that's terrible. I want nothing to do with that. So, and figuring out how to listen, like when is that good information and when is it like that you just don't have product market fit um, at all? Or when is it that you have a good product, but you just haven't found the market yet? I think those, those are just tricky challenges depending on what, what you're offering. Totally. I, I also love this question from Mike, which is about different forms of value that digital creators are able to provide. So there's like, you know, you can create courses, you can create newsletters, but like, what are the other interesting things in this sort of digital world forms, like ways of, ways of, creating or monetizing that maybe aren't as, you know, hyped as newsletters are right now or some of the other most common formats. That is literally all I think about all day long. I, I think it's very specific to, and I think that's what Mike's getting at, that, there, that there's a proliferation of ways and there's an ever-changing proliferation. I mean, it, like newsletters were not a thing people were talking about and then all of a sudden it's all anyone talked about. So, I, I think that, I mean, so there's, you know, there's the content funnel. I mean, you know, there's social, there's Twitter and LinkedIn posts and Facebook posts. Then 
kind of broadcast tools that, you know, podcasting, a lot of YouTube videos, etc. To me, the magic happens when you stop, when you actually hit users that you actually know something about. So podcasting is still essentially a broadcast medium in that you, you promote them usually on other prod podcasts, and then you don't really know who's listening. All you know is an IP address, and you don't know why they're listening or where they're listening, and, and it's, you really feel blind, I got to say. And some shows succeed really what, beyond expectations, some shows fail, and you just, it's hard to know. So you really want to get to the point where you're able to know something. I mean, obviously, you then get into privacy issues and data issues but but once you're there it just seems like there's more and more and more tools like you know i always think like when i as a nonfiction journalist like we had in my career you know you had the three minute radio story or the 800 word newspaper story then you had the kind of this american life feature story or a magazine story and then you sort of had nothing until you got to writing a book that takes several years or making a documentary or something that takes several years. There was this huge, so this might be a different version where the middle actually is, is, is succeeding. And now it's literally infinite. Like I, I you know, it literally, I used to have to go from like 20 minutes to like two hours in a big documentary. Now, every length, text, video, audio, you, you you know, and, and that's what I always say to my team at my podcast company, like the vast majority of people who will be listening to podcasts are not listening now. And they'll be listening to formats that don't exist now in ways that we can't imagine now through platforms that don't exist now. So that to me is just the most, like it's literally infinite right now where we haven't segmented it nearly enough. I would guess newsletter is too broad a term. I feel like there's gonna be a million ways of, of communicating. Yeah, I think another bucket of like unique value that a lot of creators are now monetizing fall within the category of access. So I think if I if I trace the history of like the internet for the past decade or so, I think what has happened in the past 10 years is the rise of social media, the rise of influencers, the rise of people as brands in and of themselves with affinity and fans who trust them and who want access to them. And I think a lot of the successful, fast growing companies now in the passion economy are those that help fans and audiences have closer access to that person in exchange for some sort of economic value. So examples of this would be Cameo, where you're paying someone for a personalized video shout out and feeling a greater sense of like, affinity and access and closeness to them. OnlyFans as well, like there's so many examples now of celebrities joining OnlyFans, creating exclusive content and giving their fans a, a greater sense of closeness to them. And I think even doing live video events like this over Zoom is an example of like cultivating access and monetizing access. And I saw a really interesting company in the YC batch earlier this week called ChatPay, which is operating in Brazil. And it's enabling course creators and, and really anyone to set up a paid WhatsApp or Telegram group. And the idea the thesis behind this company is that for some people, you can just monetize access to yourself. And you can put a paywall on top of a WhatsApp group and people would actually pay to be able to chat in real time with you and engage as part of your community. So I think there's a lot of new products that are exploring this idea of how do we monetize the fact that people want to have closer access to others. 
I love and it. And one of the craziest things is when you do it right, the very act of get like I know for the Patreon folks I support, giving money is pleasure. <laughs> I'm glad to. I like that I'm helping them. Like the it, it's yeah. the, the product they're selling to me is the pleasure I have in giving them money, which is bonkers. I would not yeah. have predicted mm -hmm. that that could exist. I certainly don't feel that way, say, with Amazon or, you know, or Coca-Cola or something, you know, it's, it's a special thing. Yeah, exactly. For some people, you really do want to give them money, like Taylor Swift. When she drops a new album, I'm like, I will buy everything on her store because I would like her to have all of my money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Some creators rise to that level. She really yeah. needs it. <laughs> yeah. It's been a rough couple of years, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I think this is a really good question to maybe end on. Krishna asks, how do you see the passion economy marketplaces evolving over the next 10 years? I mean, to me, this is why I invested in Lee's uh, venture fund, because I think she is much smarter at this than me. So it, it's going to evolve in the way that Lee is going to be an early <laughs> investor in all their seed stages. <laughs> Sounds great. Amazing. <laughs> so basically, no pressure, uh, yeah. yeah, so I, I have to have an answer for how the economy is going to evolve in the next 10 years. Yeah, I there there is a deck that I created about the firm that basically says, I think we're in the midst of this huge transformation in the economy. And, you know, if the last 100 years was about being employed at a company in order to reach customers and to be able to do marketing and to make your product discoverable, then I think the, the huge change that we're in the midst of right now is where workers can go directly to customers and, the only requirement of that being the case is that they're doing non-commoditized work and the customer cares about who they're working with. If that is the case, then I think a lot of these workers can bypass a company and go directly to the customer mediated by some of these marketplaces and platforms. Um, and I think that this trend can actually encompass 80 million plus American workers. So a huge segment of the American economy, I think will be transformed by passion economy models, where the worker is going directly to a customer. And I came up with that estimate by going through the Bureau of Labor Statistics data on all of the different professions in the US economy, and totaling up what are all the different professions where I think this is a, a non commoditized skill for which the end customer would actually like to build loyalty and cares about who they're purchasing from. And when I did that, that exercise, I came up with an estimate of about 80 million US workers, ranging from everything from salespeople, to people who work in media, to farmers who are growing crops and potentially could use a marketplace or a platform to establish loyalty and sell directly to customers. So I think hopefully in the next 10 years, I, I think we're going to see a lot of individual entrepreneurs arise and grow and hopefully succeed while being able to capture more of the economics and the value that they're creating for the world. Yeah. This will be, I think, you know, very important because it's like, you know, people didn't used to live in cities. Cities are a function of other things that happen in the economy. People didn't used to live in suburbs. Suburbs are a function of other things that happen in the economy, like cars and highways and stuff. So, like, it'll be very interesting to see how the world transforms over the next, I mean, 10, 50 years. Like, it's a long, long time horizon. And 
it's like one of those things where the internet fundamentally reshapes things and it feels like, oh, the internet's done. Like we had the first wave and then we had the second wave and like whatever, but it's like the printing press. I mean, you had the Protestant revolution after that. You have a lot of, there's a lot of like effects that take a while to unfold. And I, I think that that's where my head goes exactly, which is like you, you, if you read a lot of the literature from the 1890s, early 1900s, when we were shifting from farming to industrialization, you would think the main thing going on is that women were wearing pants and living on their own. Like, you know, we had for millennia, the family was an agrarian unit. There were, women did not live alone, you know, and, and, and that was a cause of enormous fear and confusion. And the idea that people are living in these cities, these 20 year olds are hanging out, who knows what they're up to. That's actually in my Worcester story when my Jewish immigrant grandfather, great grandfather married a, a Christian Yankee and it caused massive scandal. And I think, and the family unit, you know, became the nuclear family. I mean, it, it transforms everything about how we, where we live, how we live, who we love. And I think this is on that level. I, I was talking to someone the other day who was telling me when he was pursuing his passion business in his mid twenties, he decided he was going to live on his sister's couch because he wanted he was learning a bunch of things. He just wanted to live as cheaply as possible. And it ended up working out very well for him. But he was like, dating sucks when you're living on your sister's couch and you're, you go to a bar and you're telling people, no, no, but I'm building my passion business. I know I'm broke right now. And, and, and it just made me think like all the unexpected ways this will impact how we form families, how we Ident how we understand our identity, you know, religions change when there's massive economic change, how we understand faith. So yeah, I think this is a big, big, big deal. And certainly my view, I, I think Lee's view is, we're not saying like, oh boy, we'd really love it if there were a passion economy, so we're going to push for it. It's it's coming. It's here. Like it's baked in to the way the world works now and the way technology works now. It could go in different directions, but it's coming and it's going to have unimaginable change. Well, unimaginable change. <laughs> There's no better place to end than that. That's like a mic drop if I've ever heard one. Adam and Lee, thank you so much for doing this. Everyone, thank you so much for being here for all your awesome questions. I have learned Absolutely. a lot. This has been a lot of fun. For, for me personally. Yeah, well, I, I love being on with you guys. You guys have really made this a better year for me. So thank you. Oh, thank I've learned you. a lot from both of you. Well, the baseline was low, 2020. <laughs> Fair enough. It was a pretty <laughs> crap year. <laughs> and I didn't say you made it a good year, just slightly <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> better than COVID. Yeah. Thank you so much yeah. for all right, coming on the show, Adam. And thank you guys all for being here today.